Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Acts chapter 1, and I want us to think about um, what do you have to do to keep a ministry? And obviously we're going to be talking about campus outreach, but I think these things would apply to other ministries or a church in general. What do you have to do to keep a ministry focused and fruitful when you're going through a lot of transition? That's kind of the question I want us to think about. All right, And... I'm going to say it's through unity, perseverance, and prayer. And, you know, just kind of do that little brief history. Camp Sarah's Birmingham. There was a lot of transition. Um, I don't know, but there probably will be a lot of transition for us coming in the future, right? I mean, just think about Ryan leaving soon to go to Scotland. It's a good transition, but there's going to be transition, and that always is hard. But whatever we have been through, whatever we might go through in the future that we haven't been through, I don't think any of it is going to be harder than the transition that the apostles went through in the first couple of decades after Christ ascended into heaven. So um, Acts chapter 1, how did the apostles lead through a lot of transition to keep the ministry focused and fruitful? They unified, they persisted, they prayed. So this is literally right after Jesus ascends into heaven. And just pause and think about that for a second. I mean, it's like, what kind of a transition like he was here. We could touch him. We could eat with him. If we had any question about some Old Testament prophecy that seemed weird, we'd just be like, Jesus, can you flip over to Micah for a second in the scroll and explain to us what that means? And then he's gone. Right? And, and, and yes, I know it's better. The Holy Spirit is coming. And yet still, it's like, that's real tempting to say when he's sitting right here and I can hear his voice out loud in my language. That's pretty powerful. Huge transition. But look how they respond. So Acts 1, starting verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among, among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said. So you got this 120-person church, and they unify. I mean, we all know the gospel accounts that there were multiple times where the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest, right? That happens more than once. And it seems like Peter, James, and John were kind of the most in competition, who's going to sit next to you and all that. But now they unify, and one of the things they do, they unify around the leader. It's like Peter is the leader. He is, he is the undisputed leader of the New Testament church. He stands up, speaks. Everybody's on the same page, right? One accord. And the idea there is they had one soul. They, they, were, they were thinking the same way. It was like there was probably unanimous decisions, but, but at a minimum there was, there was always consent, always on the same page. You know, agreeing, feeling, desires were all lined up one accord. That's what it means. One spirit, one purpose, one will on the same page together in agreement. And I think that's what we're going to need because I think uh, Satan's number one goal in any Christian's life is drive a wedge between them and God if he can. And if he can't do that, his secondary goal is well then drive a wedge between them and the other Christians that they're closest to. Whether that's your spouse, or that's your friends, or that's the people you work with. Right? Um, you think, I mean, I always love to think about Job. Uh, Satan is trying his best to get Job to curse God. That didn't work at first, but then he gets, you know, Job's wife to essentially start cursing Job and cursing God. And just how that must have hurt. So we got to work hard by God's grace to stay unified. But, and flip over to chapter 2, 
They didn't just unify, they, they persisted. So y'all know the story. They, for 10 days, they're, they're praying. They're committed to prayer. The Holy Spirit comes. They all start preaching. 3,000 people get saved in one day. And, um, and then it's going to tell us what's the New Testament church look like. So let's just start in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I got some needs I'm about to talk to you all about that I need you all to sell something. Um, no, it's not where we're going with this, all right? And, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now just pause for one second. I bet if we could say, you know, Ben did that little brainstorming thing last night, but if we all kind of just brainstormed, if we could see anything happen in Camp Sarge, Birmingham for the next five years, and we... we Spent hours on it, throwing up everything. And then we had to boil it down to just one thing. I think that one might be the one thing that we could all agree on. Is what, what if, for the next five years, we could literally see at least one person come to Christ in Camp Cyrus, Birmingham, a day? Okay? I mean, I'm not, I'm just saying, that's got to be our heart. We got to be unified around that type of and that's what we were talking about last night, you know, building laborers, reaching the lost. I mean, that was the stories we're telling. That's the kind of thing that we want to see happening. Um, I just, I, you, when you put a bunch of leaders in a room together and the, the main kind of mission is just, hey, wait. That, that seemed, I, I just kind of think of like a bunch of thoroughbred horses put into a stall together and just, hey, just sit here, horses. I mean, it just sounds like, and I'm not an expert on horses, but that sounds to me like somebody might get kicked in the mouth. Those horses are going to be kind of jostling for position and, you know, restless. But for 10 days, they were able to stay unified, stay on the same page, stay focused on the mission. So when the Holy Spirit came, they stood up, they preached in power. And, and literally, revival breaks out. I mean, 3,000 people in one day get saved, but they keep persisting in the right things. Okay? I think the fact that the 120 seemed so unified, that when 3,000 got added, that's how you get to the end of chapter 2. It's like, man, how do you get 3,000 people? I mean, that, so much of our job is we're dealing with baby Christians, right? And it's so messy. This doesn't sound messy at all. This sounds like the perfect church. How'd that happen? The Holy Spirit. But humanly speaking, I think the 120 were so unified that when they added 3,000, the 3,000 just said, well, this is how they do life. They love one another. They serve one another. They go to church together. They listen to teaching all the time. They pray together. They worship, and they love each other so much that they got, you know, some land and another person's really struggling. They'll just sell the piece of land and give the money. And it just, it was contagious. That's what I'm trying to say. It was contagious. And I'm wanting this leadership team to have a type of unity, commitment to the vision, you know, unity around truth, right? Not just unity for unity's sake. Unity around the mission that is contagious. That these younger staff, and guys, I mean, y'all know this. But I think one of the main things that Satan seems to be doing in our culture today is people get offended and mad and want to debate about the smallest, tiniest stuff, right? The, the smallest slight, whether it's face-to-face -face or on social media. And I, well, I got to leave loud, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the culture is stacked against us having a unified staff team, especially when we're talking about where 
70 some and probably gonna be at 80 quick. And again, most of the people we're hiring, let's just be honest, they're 22 years old and they've only been Christians for two years. They, they are definitely more informed by the world. They are definitely more discipled by the sinful culture. How in the world do we have a prayer of keeping that big of a team spread out over three states unified? One thing is we better make sure we're unified. We, we better model it like crazy. We better bleed it. They better smell it on us. Because I think it will be, it'll be so attractive, right? I mean, what the world is doing, it's, it's just it's gross, it's stupid, it's immature, it's disgusting, it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. And I think if they see us unified well and persisting in that unity when there are threats against it, you know what I mean? I think that's going to be a key to letting it bleed down. Um, Kent, y'all know Kent. He, um, I guess maybe it was right before COVID. You know, I mean, I think he was seeing some of the blessings that God has done on our region. And so he came to New Year's conference. He didn't tell me he was going to do this. But he went around, I think, to maybe everybody on the leadership team. I know to several of y'all. And basically said, well, what's the secret? I think it's something that's like, what? And I'm, I think, because I think Seth and Kent both later relayed this conversation to him. He's like, part of it is we just like each other a lot. Part of it is we're just such good friends. That didn't mean you have to be best friends with everybody you work with. But I do think it's why things like this, even just hanging out, eating together. I mean, they, in the New Testament church, that yes, they were going to temple and worshiping. They were getting together in the homes, sharing meals with glad and generous hearts. You just, you, you got to have that, you know. Yeah. So, you know, Galatians 6, 8, and 9. I've been meditating on that a lot lately. And uh, I think the reality is, if, if, you're doing, if you're doing the right work of the Lord, you are going to feel weary at times. And we, we all told, we were telling stories about that last night, right? I'm weary of going back to the cafeteria. I'm weary of going to campus late at night. It's not sin to feel weary. I don't think that's what Paul means. Because I think Jesus felt weary at times, right? At times he had taken a nap. I think it's sin to give in to the weariness. That's the sin. It's the sin to get so tired I just give up. You feel weary and you keep going. You persevere. Okay? I mean, the idea here, the words that it's talking about, you know, devoted themselves. That means a lot of repetition, doing the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And it also means probably doing it for long stretches of time. I mean, you think, it, what are you devoted to in life? Right? If, if you, let's just, if you knew somebody in life, you're like, dude, that guy, Think of anybody specific here is devoted to Alabama football. It's like, okay, I probably think mean, he talks about it a lot, he reads about it a lot, a lot of time going to time and money, right? That guy's devoted going to the gym. He's there every day, he's up early. It, are we devoted to the mission like that? Unified, persisting, devoted to the mission. All right. And then flip over to chapter four. You remember what happens here? Peter and John, they're like best friends now. They're going to church to pray one day. They heal a guy. They preach the gospel. And then it says the church grows to 5,000 men in total. Now, what happened? They quit caring about women and children? No. I think it literally just got so big. It's like we can't count that much anymore. Highly likely, but by this point, I mean, within the first few days, the church in Jerusalem has gone from 120 to some mega church of like 20,000 people. I mean, that's, that's Rick Warren's size. 
massive. Okay. But they get threatened by the rulers, quit preaching in the name, they don't beat them yet, and they send them back. And I want us to look at their prayer. All right. Um, so verse 24. Well, let's start in verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. Now just, let's think about that verse. I was thinking, okay. Well, who'd they go report it to? I don't think it could be all the 20,000 church. I don't think it could be all the 5,000 men. I don't think it could be all the 3,000 that were saved. Maybe it was the 120. Or maybe it was just the apostles. I don't know. But it was some kind of leadership team. Right? They, they went back to the leadership team and said, let us tell you what happened. And they pray. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together. And let's look at what they do in their prayer. Again, they lifted their voice together to God. So it's this unified, one-accord prayer. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So there's, there's worship. There's focusing on God's character, God's works and acts. Who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're, they're quoting scripture. They're meditating on scripture. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. So up in this point, it's like they're worshiping, they're meditating, and I think there probably is some sense of celebration. It's like, hey, Lord, you're winning the battle. You know, you, Jesus rose from the dead. We got out of prison. But they don't stop there. They're going to they're ask for more. They're not just celebrating. Hey, we got a 20,000-person megachurch, right? And we didn't get arrested. We didn't get beat. Praise the Lord. They're going to ask for something. What are they going to ask for? Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Okay? Just really quick, flip over to chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So their prayer got answered. But here's what really stands out to me in, in the end of that prayer in chapter 4. They didn't ask, please protect us. Please don't let us get hurt. Please don't let us go back to prison. Please don't let us get beat. Please don't let us get killed. Now, y'all know those are not bad prayers. The Psalms are filled with prayers like that. Those are good things to pray. But I just want to point out, I think they were so unified and so persistent about the mission, they just kind of like, this is what we're most passionate. Just, God, keep blessing us. Keep letting us speak with power, blessing the work of our hands, and let's just see this thing keep going. That's what they were the most passionate about, the most they want to pray about. Okay? So, the one accord prayer. Um, you know, what does that really mean to pray in one accord? The bottom line is it means you're agreeing in prayer. Now, what does that look like? That can be one person praying out loud and everybody else saying amen or uh, it doesn't have to be that. It can be one person praying and you're agreeing in your heart. I do think, just to get real practical for a second, I do think there's a danger in Christian circles. I know I do it at times. One person's praying out loud and I can be distracted, right? Looking at something on my phone or thinking about what am I going to say? Which again... Those aren't always sinful. There might be an emergency where I need to check my phone. But I think in general, our prayer ought to be, when somebody else is praying, I'm praying with them. And you're like, oh, I feel weird about saying amen. Okay, don't say amen. Who cares? But in your heart, 
agreement. I'm, I'm thinking about what they're saying, and in, at least in my heart, I'm saying, yes, Lord, I agree for that. There is something about unified prayer that's more powerful. I mean, just think, I think we can all think about this, and especially those that have older kids and bigger families. If we get home tonight and we're exhausted, we're exhausted, and we don't want to go anywhere else. We don't want to do anything. We just want to stay in and just chill, right? But our wife and all of our kids come to us in unison and say, Dad, will you please take us out to eat at this restaurant? It's our favorite restaurant. I'm just thinking if that happens to me tonight. If I get home tonight and Jackson and Haddon have come home from college and I'm super tired and I don't want to do anything and I'm thinking the budget is already tight, but if Lena and all four of my children come together and say, Dad, will you please take us to Tzatziki's to eat dinner tonight? I'm going to say, yes. I mean, there's just not a snowball's chance in Hades. And I'm going to be like, no, you guys are agreed in this thing, uh, but I'm too tired and the money's too tight. We're not going to. Right. I mean, I guess hypothetically, that there, there will be things I would say no to, and there's things that God says no. I'm just trying to make the point. There's power in unified, persistent prayer when we come to God. Okay. The New English Bible, that chapter 1, verse 14, it says, they were constantly at prayer together. Matthew Poole says this. I love this. He says, Frequent prayer is implied. Thus, by united force, they labored to pull down mercies upon themselves and others and to do violence unto the kingdom of heaven. Is that the way we think about prayer? I'm working to pull down mercy. And listen, Matthew Poole's reformed. He's a Puritan. You know, he's not some Armenian. But there's a right biblical sense in it. I'm working in prayer together to pull mercy down so that we can go out and do violence for the kingdom of God. We can take men alive. Okay. We won't flip there, but Acts chapter 6, right? We all know this. The church keeps growing. Now they got all these widows they got to feed, and the structure's not handling it. They didn't have the right structure. They were going to have to make some changes. But, it, but here's what, you know, I don't want to get into specifics of deacons and all that. Here's what I want us to think about. Do you remember what the apostles essentially said? And you, you, can't quote, you don't have to quote it, but what did the apostles basically say? When, hey, we, need, we need more people to think about the money, to think about the food, to think about the distribution, make sure everybody's getting reached. What was the apostles' kind of bottom line response? We've we got to devote ourselves to prayer and the Word. Now, just imagine if last night, you know, we come in and then saying, you know, guys, now you're going to be on the leadership team. There's going to be some, you know, we just got a lot of stuff that needs to happen, right? There's, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. Like, for instance, Ryan's leading. He used to do a lot with assessments. So maybe, Joel, you're going to spend extra time. you got some counseling background helping out with assessments and stuff. And then Ben says, also, you know, our, our, our financial team is really struggling. It's not. This is all hypothetical. You know, we're about to lose somebody. Macaulay really needs some help. And he said to one of us, okay, just, but just let's all imagine this is true for us in the moment. I've heard you're really good with math. I'm going to need you to give some of your extra time to help out in the office doing some of the finance work. You know, probably a lot of us would have different reasons we'd respond negatively to that request. But would this even cross our minds? That would hurt my prayer life. I'm devoting so much time to my personal prayer life right now. If I have to start devoting time to help out in the office dealing with money, that will cut into my personal prayer life. That's essentially what the apostles were saying. We're so committed to studying the Word, preaching the Word, and praying that we don't have time to do important yet secondary tasks of managing money and food distribution. Listen, this is not just for 
can't say it's permanent here. I think this is for most ministers in the Western world, period. I don't think there's very many of us that could say, I just got so much going on in the prayer life, I don't have time to get to that. And that seems to be what they were saying. Now, let me up the ante a little bit more from there, because you know, part of what I'd say to all of us is, brother, how's your personal prayer life? If we're going to lead this thing, not just effectively, but with real spiritual leadership, we're going to have to have strong personal prayer lives. But here's the second question. How's your corporate prayer life? And I'll be honest, that's where I'm more personally convicted. I mean, the, the one thing that comes out in all three of these passages that we just looked at, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, is they prayed. They were praying in unison. And we, if nothing else, we as a leadership team, we need to be praying. We need to be praying in unity that God would do all this, praying in one accord. Okay? So, here's a good Calvin quote on this. Neither is prayer any sign of doubting. I mean, sometimes I think, whether right or wrong, we can try to rationalize ourselves this way. Well, I don't, I don't pray that much because I'm, I'm just trusting the Lord. I'm not worried. I just trust God. Calvin says, prayer is not a sign of doubting but rather it's a testimony of our sure hope and confidence because we ask those things at the Lord's hands which we know that he's promised. So it becomes us also after the example of the apostles to be instant in prayer. And I think we're instant, often in prayer, quick to pray, always praying, right? And to beg at God's hands that he will increase us in his Holy Spirit. Again, as John Calvin saying, beg God to increase you in the Holy Spirit. Are we doing that? God, increase my experience of being filled with and empowered with the Spirit and do it for a whole ministry. Okay. So, application, just a couple more verses. Flip over to Rome, uh, no, 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 Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. So, time-wise, you know, chronology, we're, we're fast-forwarding probably to about 50 AD, you know, so maybe 10 years from what we just read in chapter 4. Oh, exactly. And again, think about it. Some people have died. James the Apostle, been executed. Some people had to flee. Some people got excommunicated in a pretty harsh way, Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Some people have been promoted. James, the brother of Jesus, now has become the pastor of the mega church in uh, Jerusalem. Some people have been sent out, like Paul and Barnabas. You know, been a lot of transition. Peter's still a very, very influential leader. Right? And up until this point, it's like the first half of the book of Acts, Peter was the undisputed leader. After Acts 15, you never hear Peter again. Mm. Massive transition. Paul and Barnabas, they're these up-and-coming leaders. We're about to get people mentioned in this chapter we've never heard of before, like Silas. Okay? Uh, there have been all these new churches been planted, Samaria, Cyprus, Antioch, Galatia. All right? But what's happening... A lot of Gentiles are getting saved. It's more confusing. It's more messy, right? They have, they have spread out geographically like we have, and they've spread out ethnically like we have. And therefore, it gets more messy, okay? Paul and Peter, they've already butted heads. That's, that's potentially part of the reason that this whole Jerusalem council came about. Paul and Barnabas, they're about to butt heads right after this. But again, they stay unified how they do it, okay? They unified, they persisted, they prayed. So look at Acts chapter 15. You know, talk about a leadership team. That's what they were doing. It has seemed good to us 
having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. This is what I'm hoping and praying for this leadership team is that we can often, and, and, and by God's grace, I can look back, you know, and the other guys in here that have been on this team for a while can attest to this. This has been our experience. I mean, I can honestly say almost every decision that's been made since February of 2004 has been unanimous. Now, they hadn't all started unanimous. But most of them have ended. And listen, they haven't all been unanimous. There have been times where we, we, we vote on something, you know, and the, the majority wins. But even when that's happened, by God's grace, the, the minority, so to speak, has always said, okay, the Lord has spoken, so to speak. We get on the page. I mean, it's just, it's, it, and, and, and I don't think I've sufficiently been grateful enough to God. It's like, man, we're coming up on 19 years of something pretty rare. God's just blessed us with, with so much unity in this team. And I didn't plan this either, but just my time alone with the Lord this morning, working on three memory verses, just, just came up next on the list, you know, and two of them were Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what we want. And the very next verse, again, I don't know why these two were back to back, but they were, you know, it was John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, right? A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, the whole world will know you're my disciples. Guys, so here's what I'm trying to say. If Paul and Peter and Paul and Barnabas, I mean, they butted heads, some of us are going to butt heads, right? We're not more spiritual than they were. We're going to butt heads. We're going to disagree. There may be times where you got Paul and Barnabas and they, they don't work together directly anymore, right? I'm not, and listen, I don't have anything specific I'm thinking about. I'm just thinking about, based on the Bible and church history, stuff like this is probably going to come. But even through this, they stayed unified. When it came down to really important decisions, what are we going to do with the Gentiles and circumcision of the gospel? They got it right. Unified, they're persisting, they're praying. All right, last passage. We're done, I promise. Flip over to Romans chapter 15. You know, Paul's magnum opus. He wants to go to Spain. This is, we don't know exactly, maybe six years after the Jerusalem Council. So 20 plus years into the New Testament church. By now, Paul in some sense is the undisputed leader. But he's, he's closing out this letter and look at what he's going to say. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as God has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, Rome at that point is this massive growing church. Lots of Jews, lots of Gentiles. They were having some conflict about that, right? What do you eat? What do you not eat? And, he, and he's wrapping up. He's like, guys, live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And it's basically like, think about the oneness that Christ Jesus has allowed you to have with him. And at what great cost that came to Christ. Christ's like, I love these people. I'm going to die to save them because I want to be one with them. I want to marry them. And it's like out of the overflow of that experience, we're supposed to turn and say, when that guy gets on my nerves, when I don't understand his thinking, when I don't agree, listen, 
It doesn't mean you don't have debate. I mean, again, another blessing that we've had has been really healthy conflict. I've had to call multiple people after a meeting and apologize. I had to do it maybe a year or two fairly recently to Ryan and say, man, I felt like I was too aggressive in our conversation. And Ryan was there and said, man, I just felt like you were having a healthy debate. I said, well, thank you. You're gracious. In my heart, I felt like my conscience wasn't clear. I felt like, so they had healthy debate. That's what the Jerusalem Council was. That's why I want to mention it. But they ended unified. And part of how you do that is you don't live like the culture. You know, get your feelings hurt about one little thing because it's like, look at all Christ has given up to be at one with me. I can give up a ton of my pride, of my self-respect, of my hurt feelings or whatever to stay unified on this team. And guys, I think if by God's grace we're praying together, we're fighting to do that, it'll happen in this room and then it'll trickle down to the whole region. So let me pray for us. Father, I, I pray. I pray for me and for all of us that part of what would happen in our personal devotional life and in our corporate prayer times together is we wouldn't just go through the motions, we wouldn't just speed through the act of prayer to get to the next thing. We wouldn't treat prayer, and Lord, I confess, I do this oftentimes, I treat prayer like a transition. I'll pray now to move to the next thing. I pray we would have the wisdom to slow down and remember that we're praying to, and we're only praying by a crucified and risen Savior. And Lord, I, just, I pray that that would humble us out of any sense of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. It would also embolden and empower us to love one another, to live in harmony, to live with glad, sincere, generous, rejoicing hearts that could be bold enough to disagree, to have healthy debate. But then when the decision's made to get fully on board, to trust your sovereignty, and God, I do pray. I, I, I pray for revival. I pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. People added to our number every day. Mm-hmm. The, the, the most lost, arrogant, angry, bitter people in the world saying there's something about the harmony that they have, the way they love one another, that's compelling. It's like spiritual magnets that draws them in. Not for our name, but for yours. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.